You're listening to this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters, a podcast about the personalities and events in the New South Wales Parliament here in Sydney with Alistair Hinskins. Well, Freya, after a little bit of a break, it's great to have Macquarie Street Matters back again. Gee, a lot's been happening. It's been a, It's been big. We've got ongoing issues with the Middle East and how that's impacting on us locally. We've got, we've had budget estimates. So there's a lot for us to talk about later on. But our guest this week is the Honourable Scott Fallow, who's been in Parliament since I've been in Parliament, a great member of the Upper House, Shadow Minister for Housing, and he's going to talk to us about a range of issues. So we're looking forward to that. Well, welcome to this week's Macquarie Street Matters, and my guest uh, this week is the Honourable Scott Farlow, who came into Parliament at the same time I did back in 2015, and is our Shadow Housing Minister, yep. which is obviously a really important area for government policy at the moment, which we'll talk a bit more about, but welcome, Scott. Thank you very much. And I also get to vote for Alistair as well, so that's a great joy every election. Well, I, 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 I suppose I shouldn't have left that out. I? But, uh, Scott's <laughs> a one constituent, of my, yeah. A constituent, very important. Scott and Penny, a very important constituents, and uh, living in, in the beautiful suburb of West Pimble. Yeah, indeed. And um, very well served by our local member. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Scott, you came in in 2015 and I reread your inaugural speech. It was actually an excellent speech full of references to, you know, Friedman, Margaret Thatcher and, and Liberal Party values. Mm. I love the story about how I think you said when you were five that you put up a mock election booth in your home for the 1988 election. <laughs> well, look, and Nick Reiner won in my home, thankfully. And uh, I've, re- I've told Nick about that story as well, one of your predecessors. And, look, I was interested in politics from a very young age and quite tragic. And I've often reflected I'm an only child. And so as an only child, you often are in situations where you've got to talk to older people about things. And so for me, that created a love of both sport and politics because they were two things that I could talk about with my parents' friends. And, and were, your pa- were your parents interested in politics no, too? No, not really. Look, I would say that... I, I wouldn't necessarily say my parents are swinging voters. My mother, I think, has always voted Liberal but was never avert in her politics. My dad is probably much more of a swinging voter but on the right and can, you know give me some frank and fearless feedback from time to time in terms of his view of the Liberal Party or his view of my politics. But it certainly wasn't something that was in the blood in the family, so to speak. They weren't politically active or engaged. So it was something that I developed. I had arguments with my teachers at primary school and high school. Actually, coming back from your hometown, one of my teachers at high school was a Novocastrian and she was my business studies teacher. And I remember I walked in one day, it was May Day, and, and she said, what are you all doing here? You should be protesting. And I said to her, well, man, we're, we're here to learn about business, not about communism. You know, this is, <laughs> this is what we're here to learn about. And she was quite surprised. But her and I, although having very different politics, were always you know, respectful in our debates. And I was never one to be backwards and coming forwards when it came to a political debate. Um, which Good. got me into trouble sometimes at school. Well, I think that's important, though. I'm, I remember having some great discussions and debates with my economic, uh, my economics uh, team, uh, and uh, he was 
similarly of a left-wing persuasion. I don't know if Mr Callow is still alive, but... <laughs> And I think that's important. That's an important part of testing your ideas and, and understanding the other side. What I thought was one thing that really sort of struck me, which is not something that I've discussed with anyone else yet on the podcast oh. in your inaugural speech, but which I thought was completely spot on, was that you raised this issue of people equating expenditure on yeah. an issue with actually effectiveness on an issue. And, and you raise the important point that the two aren't always the same yeah. and, and that you need to measure effectiveness, you know, by outcomes, not by how much money government spends on an issue. And, and I really feel... Uh, I actually think it started with the first Gonski reforms. Yeah. I, I remember thinking, rather than saying how much money you're spending on something, don't you need to say how you are going to get effective use of that money? And it, it's almost since then that politics in Australia has been too much focused, I think, on how much money you spend on an issue rather than the outcomes that you achieve. And look, Alistair, I think that we as the Liberal Party need to acknowledge our part that we played in that as well. So... I've got to say that I used to always take anything, a speech, press release or that, and it'd have record spending record and just sort of scratch that out. And look, I'm sure you can check the hand side and there are some times where I would have fallen into the trap. But <coughs> we've created this mentality as well that if you're not spending money on it, then it doesn't matter. And one of the things we did do that was very good, I thought, was outcomes-based budgeting and our outcome statement in the budget where we actually used to look at this is what we're spending, but what are we getting for it? What are the key metrics? What are the changes? Sadly, Labor and government this year have gotten rid of the outcome statement. So we don't really know what that money is actually going to and, and what whether you're getting it's Yes, and whether yeah. you're getting good value for money. Yeah, indeed. And, and that's something that I've actually spoken about on the podcast before, the, the taking out of that outcome statement. And, and what a bad symbolic gesture that was by the MINS... Labor government to take that out because it's removing all accountability for how taxpayer money is being spent. This is not Chris Minns's money. Yeah, this is taxpayers' money and they're entitled to know. And, and one of the great reforms of Dom Perrottet as Treasurer, which I'm not sure people have really spoken about, is the way in which he drove transparency yeah. in budgeting through the whole public service. When he came in as treasurer, we were still, you know, suffering the the, the overhang of, of Labor and there was a huge degree of opacity yeah. in how government government was spending its money and he really drove transparency and I think that's an important thing. It's really disappointing to see that Labor is now winding that back. Yeah, and look, and I think that in terms of why they're doing it at this time is because for Labor, and, and you know, you've interrogated the budget as I have, it's hard to sort of navigate. And the government comes out when it comes to a budget, and in my space, in housing, and they'll come out and say, look, here's $300 million for affordable housing. And as we interrogate, when you go through those figures, well, so $300 million in maintenance, for instance, well, that's actually a rollover of what we had as a government anyways. So there's a lot of smoke and mirrors going on. Or, of course, their great social housing announcement or affordable housing announcement through Landcom, where you're interrogated and you're looking at 80 affordable homes a year out to 20, 39, 40. So there's a reason they're doing this, and that's because they want to hide the real values and optics out there for the people in New South Wales. Because 
what they're delivering is not what the coalition were able to deliver in government. So despite all the money they're putting in, they're not able to deliver more and part of the problem is because of the pay rises they've got for their union mates. Yeah, they're strangling the budget through their public sector wages policy. But I I must say, if you just think about it, um, if one of your early steps as a new government is to try and be backfilling and hiding what you're going to be doing in the future because you don't want to succeed on your merits, it shows a huge lack of confidence in your ability to actually be able to govern, doesn't it? Yeah, and look, and I think we see in terms of this Labor government that there's a lot of novices there. So I've got to say I'm constantly surprised that they are not better in government because they've had a lot of time to prepare. But you've only got Michael Daly and now Steve Wan who've had ministerial experience before. And so there are many who I think are still sort of on their training wheels at the moment in government and aren't even confident in their own abilities. And I'm sure we'll talk about budget estimates, but that was on display there as well. Well, they were incredibly lazy in opposition. They really, their, their whole strategy to get re-elected seemed to be one of waiting for the electoral cycle to change yep. rather than actually trying to bring on a change themselves. They, and, and look, should we be surprised that they are novices, that they don't seem to act in a professional way when many of them, almost all of them, have very little experience of success in the real world outside of Labor politics, Labor head office and being a political staffer. Yeah, well, look, and I think when we have a look at what we're seeing in terms of the Labor ministers, funnily enough, it's some who actually do have that pedigree who are doing better than others. But there are plenty, I think, in there that really have just come out of the union movement and that's their sole experience in life. And we see around this place that the unions are now running the show. And if the only advice you're getting is from the union movement, you're not going to get that understanding of the real world, what's happening with businesses out there, what's happening with the punters on the street, how they're experiencing it, because the only lens they're looking at it through is the union movement in New South Wales at the moment. There are more trade unionists in Parliament now walking around the corridors than there is in Trades Hall Council, I think. <laughs> uh, it's it's quite, quite, quite an amazing change. Well, I wonder who's backfilling the positions over there. That's one of the questions in yeah. a sense. Where are they coming from? So, Scott, what what made you, you... You went on and studied at university. I yep. think you did law. And, I did. And so what what sort of enticed you towards coming into into a political life, a public life, particularly as, as a relatively young man as opposed to the many other opportunities that were available for you? Well, look, in many ways, it's sort of you never know where the doors will take you that you walk through. So my first door was through the Sydney University Liberal Club. I'd actually tried to join the Liberal Party before that, the age of 16, and no one ever got back to me. And so when I joined up at Sydney University Liberal Club, I got involved in the Liberal Party and I sort of found myself falling into it at every opportunity. So 2003 election campaign would be asked to, can you do a train station and go out there? And then that led me to a position where I was the deputy campaign manager for our campaign at Stratford. Didn't go very well. But from there, I then was going to stand as an unelectable uh, council candidate. Uh, somebody else who was standing at the time decided to pull out. That then put me into a position where I'd uh, be contesting for a winnable position on the council. I ended up being elected on that council and we got a good result at that election, a better result at the next one. So... Every opportunity, I kept on walking through doors and found myself going 
further and further down a political pathway. While I'd always been interested in politics, it wasn't my intention to go into politics. When I first started at university, I thought that I'd have a career, funnily enough, in business rather than the law, but I found at university I loved the law as well and just sadly at the time was always constrained in how much I could devote to it because I was spending so much time in politics and that as well. But I've always thought that when it comes to politics, it's an area where you can make change. And look, Alistair, I know with your background, like you had a very successful career in the law as an SC, but there's still something inside of you that thinks you want to be in the arena and that you can make change in politics, and you certainly can. And I think when it comes to politics, it's one of those areas where you can be at home and yelling at the TV and be frustrated, and and we get frustrated in here. Uh, Whether we're in government or whether we're in opposition, we get frustrated in here at some of the decisions, but at least you're able to be able to voice your views um, and be able to stand up for the people who are your constituents and stand up for the people who share the same views as you and be able to prosecute that case. And that's one of the great privileges that politics allows us. I must say, Scott, uh, you and I did some uh, door knocking in the recent state election together and what really struck me was your great political experience. You know, when you go around door knocking and and campaigning, you you often do it with people of different levels of experience and and I really enjoyed our opportunity to go around East Hills and, and, uh, and, and Western Sydney working hard trying to get the result for the coalition in the 2023 election. Fortunately, we fell short, but we certainly didn't We didn't leave anything on the... No, indeed. And look, I think, you know, door knocking is a really great experience in many ways. It's, it can be a daunting experience at times, but you're hearing from people at their home, where they're most comfortable in terms of the issues that impact them. And it gives you a different perspective. And that's a perspective that's not picked up in polling. And I think people also appreciate having a politician front up and explain themselves. And sometimes they won't agree with you. Sometimes you'll have an argument at the door, a constrained argument, you know, as they always say, the customer is always right in a sense, but that doesn't mean you change your views or your values. But you're able to have that interface with them. And I think as we discovered there as well, part of the Part of the challenge we faced was some of the misconceptions which we could actually write on the door, so to speak, and actually say, well, hang on a second, this is actually what's happening. Don't believe um, Labor spin uh, when it comes to some of the policies. And you can only really do that with door knocking. Um, There's very few other opportunities to be able to correct the record. It's it's an incredibly valuable qualitative information source, isn't it? It, Yeah, it, it is excellent and it's... It's great to be out there talking to people and also talking to people not just from your area. I mean, mm. you know, you've, you've got to get out of your usual social groups to appreciate the rich diversity of, of our state. Yep. Uh, I had the opportunity to travel around virtually all of the state <coughs> campaigning yep. in the state election and, and it was great. Uh, and you learn things about New South Wales constantly, don't yeah, you, you? Do. which is incredibly valuable. We as an opposition are committed to being there across New South Wales because not everyone's experience is the same across our state. So we're doing that with our regional shadow cabinets. We, of course, went to Orange last week and we've got other ones coming up in the future. And we've been to Dremoyne and we've been to Liverpool and Holsworthy. So there's a diverse experience that we're getting across the state from the people of New South Wales because our state is so vast and diverse and we need that diverse experience. Absolutely. Now, one of the ways in which oppositions keep governments accountable is through a process called budget estimates. Oh, yes. Which is really the upper house 
interrogating the ministry of the lower house about the performance in their portfolios and how money is being spent and, and, and the issues within those portfolios. What's your take on how the MINS ministry performed in its first budget estimates? Well, look, it was a fail mark, really, for their ministry, I think. I had anticipated that this budget estimates, I thought they'd be across their brief. They've been ministers now for close to nine months. And I thought they would be in there and be across their brief, be able to direct every question appropriately, as most of our ministers were in government. And I also thought that in terms of this budget estimates, we've they've only been in government a short period of time. So effectively, most of the decisions we're interrogating are their ones about their current budget and not about past performance, so to speak. So I thought for most of them, it would be a relatively easy performance. But as we saw from a range of ministers, they really don't have coverage of their briefs. I think that with some of the ministers, you know, I'll, I'll name one, Anilak Chandabiong, for instance, I think they've got such a diverse range of portfolios, it's hard to marry up those interests. When you're dealing with corrections on one hand and innovation on the other, it's very difficult to be able to find some sort of alignment. And I think we saw through his budget estimates that he really hadn't married the two. And I think he outlined that he hadn't visited correctional centres in that. Uh, There's cuts to the innovation portfolio space that he seemed to be unaware of. So we're testing them at the moment on their current policies and not their record, so to speak. So it was surprising to me that Labor really pulled up short when it came to this budget estimate. I was actually incredibly surprised. Having been a minister who's, you know, been asked questions at budget estimates on a number of occasions, I was actually quite shocked at how lacking in knowledge yeah. the ministers were. I'm not talking about one or two. I'm talking about almost all of them. Yeah. Uh, were in terms of basic detail about their portfolios. I mean, there was... I remember Bronnie Taylor, I think, put up a great clip with Jodie Harrison where she just kept saying, I'll I'll have to take that on notice, notice. I'll take that that on notice, notice. I'll take that on notice. It was bizarre. I mean... It was it was if they hadn't even thought of the issue. They hadn't even thought in that case. They hadn't even thought of seniors. Like, and I've got to say, just in terms of making some sort of supporting comments like in that exchange of budget estimates that I saw of Bronnie's as well like the fact that the minister didn't even talk about the importance of seniors the importance of seniors week the importance of seniors festivals that she was just there I'll take it on notice I'll take it on notice oh yeah I'll take that one on notice again just showed that the ministers while not even having the knowledge don't really seem to have the commitment either in the space and I think that's very sad for the people in New South Wales. Well the 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 bigger problem with all of that of course is that there's there's, there's one person in each ministry that actually represents the people of New South Wales, and that's the minister. Yep. And so if the minister doesn't have basic information about the portfolio, they cannot be an advocate for the people of New South Wales against the public servants within their ministry. I mean, that's your job. Yeah. Your, your job is not to be the spokesperson for the public servants. Your job is to be the spokesperson on behalf of the people of New South Wales to the department yeah. and to the, the people that work within the department. Now, I didn't get any sense from watching any of them, including, by the way, the Premier Chris Minns, that any of them really 
are taking seriously that important role. Yeah, and look, we have a session in budget estimates. So the morning sessions with the minister and the bureaucrats. The afternoon session is with the bureaucracy. I've got to say, when we were in government, there was quite a difference between that morning and afternoon session because, look, the ministers would, in the morning, often outline their direction, their values, their views. In the afternoon, you'd sort of pick apart the, the bureaucracy a little bit more. To be frank, sometimes there was a bit of divergence in terms of what the bureaucracy was saying and what the minister might be saying in the morning. This time round, it seemed like we're singing off the same song sheet. And I don't that think that's because the bureaucracy is following the direction of the ministers, but that the ministers are following the direction of the bureaucracy. And look, sometimes that can be good. And I'd say with some of these ministers, it again shows um, their naivety and that they're just not up to the job. Uh, I think that's undoubtedly correct. And, you know, what, what we're now seeing in a number of different areas are calls for legislative change which are unnecessary but because the ministers aren't performing there's sort of this idea that you know the premier's putting around chris minns is putting around that oh we need to change the legislation when all it actually requires is for the existing legislation to be administered properly yeah. Well, look, and, and funnily enough, even I was in local government estimates with Ron Honig, your opposite number when it comes to management of the House. And that's actually sort of a bizarre situation where the department, we understand, has advised that there does need to be legislative change, but Ron sort of has given up the fight and said, no, no, I can't get anything through this parliament. There's too many crossbenches. So I'm trying to work out a workaround to be able to work with the current legislation, which we've already been told isn't fit for purpose. So... It's amazing that, you know, you've got some who are in this area where, oh, we need legislative change and we'll throw up our hands. And then you've got somebody like Ron who's there trying to work out a, a workaround when he's supposed to, of course, be managing legislation through the House. And you know what a big task that is, but it's your job, effectively, at the end of the day. Well, the, the, the current numbers in the lower house are exactly the mirror opposite of what we faced yeah. um, when we were um, in government in that last year when I was leader of the house so yeah it's as you say it's it's something that you've just got to deal with mm. and, and work with um, w one of the bizarre issues within the budget estimates was the question of palliative care cuts oh yeah um, and the different accounts that were given can you just take us through that well look the premier came forward and said oh look we can't do it because we just don't have the nurses to do it but there is a cut here and then I think it was the next day. It's 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 over a hundred million dollars yeah, cut. It's, it's not. Uh, this is not this some is, sort of rounding yeah. error. <laughs> you're right. Like these are huge bickies. And yeah. you're talking about you know the premier saying yes, we acknowledge there's a cut, but that's because we don't have the nurses in place to be able to conduct it. So made that acknowledgement. Then the next day, I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was the next oh, day. Oh, sorry. Or two can, days sorry. After. Can I just stop you there? Yeah. These were palliative care increases, which were. Put in, put in place at the time of the voluntary assisted dying yep. laws with bipartisan support Indeed. and with Chris Minns' express support, yep. he then gets in as Premier and 12 months later he cuts over $100 million of those, mm. of those palliative care and initiatives. Is, and, Alistair, this isn't just any other budget cut. This is the quality of life for people who are at, their, at the end of their life, unfortunately. And particularly and, in regional areas yeah. where, where the gaps in palliative care are, are most stark. Yeah, yep. indeed, indeed. And it's it's something that is affecting people across the state. Yep. And then the next day you had Ryan Park, the health minister, come in and say, oh, no, these cuts don't exist. You just 
didn't read the budget papers properly. It was extraordinary to see this sort of behaviour from a minister, particularly directly in conflict with what his own Premier had said just the day before. So you see a government that's not even singing off the same song sheet when it comes to this. And we know from their upper house member, Greg Donnelly, who's, of course, got a huge interest in this area, and I'll credit Greg for prosecuting the case when it's come to palliative care for many years. And he actually commended us when we were in government for what we had delivered for palliative care. But Greg Donnelly's even called this out and said that it's an absolute shambles what the government's done here. So... I mean, that is of particular concern when you've got a major area of public policy which affects the quality of life, as you've correctly said, of people at the end of their life in pain and distress. And you've got the Premier and a senior minister not agreeing with each other, not apparently understanding the budget in the same way. It, It doesn't inspire any confidence that they actually know what they're doing and that they're actually working together as a team. And and I, I'd ask you this, Scott, that, and we, we're not getting obsessed by polls, but there was a poll on the weekend which showed quite extraordinarily, I think, that in the first nine months of a, of a first-term government, a decline in the primary vote from the election... Yeah. I can't remember that ever happening before. I, I, you know, you've been following politics a long yeah. time. I have too. I can't remember a first-term government that within such a short period of time, the polls are saying that there's actually a drop in their primary vote from the election. And what is also extraordinary is that so many people are undecided on whether Chris Minns should be the Premier. Now, that to me means that there is widespread scepticism of this government and whether people are actually getting what they thought they were voting for. Yeah, well, I think it's been an incredibly short honeymoon for this government and I think that people thought it would be a no-consequence decision in changing to the Labor Party the last election. And as they've already seen, there's a lot of consequences to this decision. There's infrastructure projects that have been cut already. As we've seen, palliative care cuts from this government. We've seen that when they said for the election, that these pay rises for the unions would come at absolutely no cost, that it is now costing the taxpayers of New South Wales billions of dollars. That was a bigger lie than suggesting that we wanted to privatise Sydney Water. Which there was no evidence for whatsoever. And but, 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 <laughs> but the idea that you can do these huge public service wage increases without any impact on the budget was just an out-and-out lie. And, and this is one of the questions that's been asked of many ministers through budget estimates as well. Where are these productivity gains that you said that you'd be delivering? And, and there are no productivity gains. This has just been a big payout to the union movement in New South Wales and a thank you for their support in getting them elected. Mm. Yes. Housing. Housing. Big issue. You, you, you've got a really incredibly important portfolio at this point in time because what we have seen it seems to me, is um, a disruption in the housing market in New South Wales since COVID, the likes of which we've never seen before. Um, And uh, we we can talk about what's caused that. I mean, first of all, we had this incredible reversal of the 100-year trend for people to move into Sydney from regions turn around (coughs) during COVID, which was quite interesting to see. We then... That then seemed to result in increases in property prices because people were moving around, there was mm-hmm. more stock on the market and all the rest of it. 
in regional areas particularly, huge increases in regional areas. Then, of course, we had, I think, a lack of will to invest in new housing as a consequence of the turning off of immigration. We had supply chain issues for construction from China and and elsewhere in the world. So we had this huge disruption to housing as a consequence. This has driven higher rents, it's driven higher housing prices, we've got huge shortages of accommodation. And the labour solution to that, would to, to the housing shortage, would seem to be to bring in record numbers of people from overseas. Yeah. Incredibly. Well, look, it's amazing. And Alastair, I think you're right in terms of going back to COVID. So there is this amnesia that I find that we might as a society have when it comes to COVID. Like, we want to forget about that period, justifiably, understandably. There were a lot of things that happened during that period that were unprecedented. And when it comes to housing, you're you're dead right in terms of what was happening. Our trajectory before COVID, we had 72,000 homes that were constructed in 2018. So there was actually a steady increase. During our time in government, we were delivering more than 50,000 new homes. Compare that to Labor, which was less than 40,000 per year. So there was actually an increase under the Liberal and Nationals government. But, of course, COVID had a huge impact. It had an impact in terms of the viability of development, like when the borders first shut, I think people thought that this was going to be a cataclysmic impact in terms of property prices. There was a lot of fear that was in the market. So people changed their decision making. People who had development applications in the process weren't proceeding with them. We found, of course, there were impacts to the construction sector at the time in terms of what work they were able to do. We also found during COVID that people wanted to change the way in which they lived, as you quite rightly say. People wanted to go to regional areas, but people also turned their back on apartment living. There were more and more people who wanted to go to freestanding homes because they wanted to be able to work from home. They were concerned in many ways as to living in an apartment block and transmission. So there were a lot of changes that happened during the COVID period. And it wasn't just in New South Wales. This was nationally and in fact internationally. And you can see that the same issues are being faced in the UK, in Canada, in the United States. So this is a global problem that we're facing and addressing now. And New South Wales is not immune. But as you quite rightly say, during this period, instead of having consistent, sustainable migration levels, Labor at a federal level have said, we're going to bring in net migration of 480,000 people, which is double what it was pre-pandemic. And the highest in the OECD? Highest in the OECD. (laughs) We've got a migration rate in Australia of about 6.4, or net migration rate of about 6.4 per thousand residents, which is one point higher than Canada, about two point higher than New Zealand, double the rate of the UK and the US. So when we look around and say, what's different here... That is fundamentally mm. what is different. And and from a coalition point of view, we've got nothing against immigrants. My father was an immigrant. Many of our MPs are from yeah. immigrant, recent immigrant heritage. The, the point is, is this the right time? Are these the right numbers yeah. to be dialling up when you don't have a solution mm. to a lot of the housing, even for our existing population? Yeah. I, I think this is going to be a massive aggravation of the problem. We just had a report come out in the last couple of days saying that rents in New South Wales are the highest in Australia and and that 
and and this is all contributing to the cost of the yeah. huge cost of living stresses that average households are undergoing at the moment. Yeah. You know, we just had an interest rate rise. Yeah. It just seems to be a, a very hard to understand policy by Labor. And, and of course, the other thing, the other thing that you know we we need to bear in mind with migration is that the federal government makes the decision to bring people in. And then they push them over to the state governments yeah. and say, you find a place to house them, you find a school to educate their kids in, you build the hospitals to look after them when they mm. get sick, and, and we're not going to give you anything else. And we got the announcement from Labor just a few days ago again that they're actually going to reduce the amount of federal government contribution yes, of infrastructure, to infrastructure. Pro- projects. It's extraordinary. So it's 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 it seems to be Labor have no idea how to manage any of these issues properly. And the sad thing, Alistair, is that and you know, you sat around the cabinet table. When we were in government and there was a federal Liberal government, there was a back and forth. There is no way that a state Liberal government was just taking whatever the Fed said. There was a back and forth. It doesn't seem to be here when it comes to this Labor government and the Albanese well, federal government. Well, we've got government. a weak state government. That's we've the problem. A, we've I got mean, a they're a minority government. government. Yeah. They're a minority government with weak individuals in the, in the senior leadership. Yeah. So, Alistair, let me tell you, when it comes to the housing targets, so Chris Minns turned up a national cabinet when it was supposed to be the national cabinet to determine housing policy in New South in, in Australia. It was billed as the big national cabinet for housing policy and he had no advice from the Department of Planning as to whether we could construct 377,000 homes in this state. No advice. So he went along, he signed up to a $1.2 million, uh, $1.2 million housing target with no advice from the Department of Planning as to whether we could actually meet those targets. So that's effectively kowtowing to the federal government. Well, it's also literally government policy made up as you go along yeah. rather than considered detailed policy which you are confident that you can deliver. Yeah, indeed. And, and this is what we're seeing, I think, with Labor at the moment, that federal, state Labor governments are not actually assisting us. And, look, I'll give credit to some other state Labor governments that are pushing back, but it's not happening in New South Wales. They're just taking their, they're just taking their writing instructions from Canberra. We, we used to say when this time last year that, that state Labor were all politics, no policy, yeah. no depth... And the fact of the matter is they're that in government too. They haven't changed. Yeah. Well, look, I think in government, and we're seeing housing, for instance, we are seeing them come in with absolutely no agenda and then floundering while they're here. So one minute they're increasing taxes on new homes. The next minute they're talking about increasing densities, but they don't consult with councils about how they do that. And then they start backtracking. So there's no certainty for the industry to actually move forward, which is why we've seen development applications actually starting to drop in New South Wales. So I've got no idea what their pathway is to be able to get to their 377,000 housing target. And and the end result of all of this is... Our young people don't feel as if they have a future to buy a house, that they are that they are floundering in in really expensive rental accommodation yeah. with no no way out, yeah. and they're not able to buy into the the economy by getting their own home. It, it, it's got incredible long term 
adverse social impacts, not only on individuals and their lives now, but well into the future. It's an incredible failure by Labor on our young people and the future of our state. Uh, look, and that's why we had things like the first home buyer choice program because it was about giving people that opportunity to get that first step on the housing rung because into the future it is so important to be able to have that security of home ownership and being able to make that available for as many people as possible. And what we're seeing with this Labor government at the moment is that they've got just a focus on social housing and rentals. Now we need more social housing, there's no doubt about that. We need more rental accommodation but we also need a pathway for people to be home owners and to have that security of home ownership for their future. And let's hope that the solution for our housing crisis is not what Labor's putting up, which is to get more people into social housing. Yes, as you say, that's an important objective, but it's got to be so much more than that. That's only ever going to be the most extreme end of our our, our sort of social poverty. Mm. What we need to do is to actually give working families the, 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 the middle hope and opportunity and that's what seems to be desperately lacking under Labor. Yeah and look what we're seeing at the moment is rents have increased by 26% for apartments in Sydney, for houses increased by 20% in the last year. So more and more families are struggling in order to be able to pay those bills which means that they can't save the deposit for the future either and with escalating mortgage costs we've seen of course that real wages in Australia have dropped by the highest in the OECD by 5.1%. So we've got families that are doing it really tough and a government at both the state and the federal level that just don't seem to care. I don't think that that statistic that you just mentioned there has been widely enough appreciated. So in the last 12 months, there was a more than 5% drop in real wages in Australia, the worst result in the whole of the OECD. That's the legacy of the first 12 months a little bit over the first 12 months of an Albanese government. Yeah, well, look, we said it wouldn't be easy under Albanese and it's showing in the suburbs across Australia. And and something's got to be done about that. And, you know, it's incumbent upon us as a strong opposition to ensure uh, that there's great accountability and a a better way forward than than what we're seeing at the moment. Scott, that's been a really interesting discussion. Thanks so much for joining me on Macquarie Street Matters. And we'll be looking uh, with great interest as to the solutions that you'll come up with as our Shadow Housing Minister. Thank you very much for having me, Alistair. Always great to join you, and particularly on Macquarie Street Matters. Thanks, Guy. That was a very interesting discussion with Scott Mm. Farlow. We certainly covered a lot of ground. One of the big things that has been happening, not just in New South Wales, but pretty much throughout the Western world, is the, the challenge to multiculturalism that the current events uh, in the Middle East has been causing. And, and I've got to say, you know, as the son of an immigrant, um, I'm enormously proud of the way in which uh, Australia and particularly New South Wales has sort of embraced so many different people from so many different countries and religious backgrounds uh, into our community. And we, we always talk about... New South Wales being one of the most diverse but harmonious places in the world. But that's really been under a lot of stress in recent weeks, hasn't it? 
Totally. It's been quite – it's just been disheartening to see, to be honest, because I think, you know, we all have friends from different backgrounds, especially me going to Sydney University. You know, we're around people from all across Sydney, all different backgrounds, faiths, no faiths, uh, and, and that's what makes it – so cool in many senses because you do get to speak to people who normally you'd never really meet and that's wonderful and we're one of the only countries in the world alongside a few others Europe and North America where you really do get multiculturalism at work but part of the challenge for multiculturalism is it only works if everyone subscribes to the same underlying values, which is respect for one another, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and a fundamental appreciation for those values that have made Australia the country it is. And when people start to lose that, that's when multiculturalism comes under threat. Well, I think what we can do is have respectful disagreements about points of view, Mm. but What's particularly troubling is when people actually travel across Sydney, for example, to actually present a point of view that they know is going to be threatening to another group. I mean, that's, I don't, I can't remember that happening before. Mm. And I think that's what's a particular concern to me because I think, you know, we've always had people that live side by side who have different views on things. I mean, that's all part of having a plural plural society. But, you know, the idea that you, you know, come into a com- come in a convoy into an area and make people feel unsafe, I think that's a really bad development and, and mm. something which I'm not quite sure that we're managing with the sort of leadership that we need from a community point of view. Mm, exactly. And I think as well, when you're travelling to an area where you know a large chunk of a certain group lives and you're deliberately going there to try and intimidate that group, how, how is that productive? Who wins from that? All that does is fray the social fabric of our state. What it reminds me of is one of the leading cases in American constitutional law on freedom of speech is actually the town of Skokie against the National um, American Socialist Party. And what happened in the 1970s, I think it was, and people who are fans of the Blues Brothers movie will know that there's a little reference to this towards the end of the Blues Brothers movie. But what actually happened was that the American Nazi Party decided that they would find a place in America near Chicago called the town of Skokie, which had the highest concentration of Holocaust survivors in the whole world outside of Israel. And they decided that that would be a really good place to march down in Nazi uniforms, doing the Zig Heil and all the rest of it. And, and the town of Skokie tried to get an injunction mm. to stop the Nazis from doing that. And the US Supreme Court famously, and, and it split the Jewish community because many of the Jewish community supported the American Council of Civil Liberties and they actually supported the Nazis against the town of Skokie getting the injunction because they believe that the right to freedom of expression trumped that. And this is why bills of rights, by the way, are incredibly unhelpful Mm. just as the right to bear arms is incredibly unhelpful but in that case the nazis won and so they could do their protest and this was a very troubling 
decision mm. by the US Supreme Court. So it, it has, it just reminds me of that case mm. when you see people going out of their way to upset other people. That seems to me to be, you know, just as, yeah. just as there's no right to, to fighting words, there's no right to incitement of violence, that's never been recognised as being part of the freedom of mm. expression. This also is getting incredibly close to the line when people are actually trying to intimidate people and make them feel uncomfortable mm. and, and not safe. And so, you know, these are some of the complex and difficult issues that are being thrown up at the moment. I'm not sure that we're really seeing great civic leadership from our governments on this, either a federal or a state level, which is uh, disappointing. Mm. The other thing that's been happening in the last few weeks, of course, is budget estimates. And we've seen what can only be described as, as some breathtaking absence of any knowledge by responsible ministers. I mean, I, I do feel like, you know, these people should be handing back their commissions <laughs> to the governor. So, uh, I mean, many of them. I mean, anyway, we, we, we'll put together a bit of a compilation tape which we might play now. Mm. But the, 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 the this is like, I, I mean, famously Prukar was asked, a question from a year seven NAPLAN exam, mathematics exam, which he got not just partly wrong, but hopelessly wrong. Totally wrong. Like embarrassing. Like it showed no concept, no no ability to understand mathematical (laughs) concepts at all. And and we can we can joke about that and maybe you know, but but these ministers have been appalling Mm. in terms of their lack of knowledge and preparation with regard to their portfolios. It's funny when their incompetence is broadcast on 2GB. It's concerning when their incompetence is broadcast during estimates and you realise that, oh my goodness, the person leading these departments in charge of allocating billions of dollars to vital projects that will have a genuine impact on the people in our communities are just totally, totally not knowledgeable. That Well... Uh, look, you, you don't need to be a brain surgeon to be able to read a brief and understand a brief, surely, as a minister. I mean, you know, every government, you know, has their strong ministers mm. and their weak ministers, but, gee, some And of you them, don't need to read a brief if you want to be a Labor minister. <laughs> it's uh, uh, well, it, it's, it, it's really not funny because, no. you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's the people of New South Wales that will ask, legitimately ask themselves... So is this why life is so hard at the moment? Is this why our cost of living is so difficult? Mm. And I think, I think there is a direct correlation between the Mickey Mouse performance of these ministers in budget estimates and the way in which this government is actually dealing with the serious issues mm. that we have in New South Wales. But let's go to the, the, the reels and, and, and our listeners will see what I'm talking about. Just going back, look to the seniors team within New South Wales. How many people in that team are focused on ageing? <clears throat> In your team, in your seniors team? I'd have to take that on notice. You, you, you don't know? Right. So who, who does the team report to? Uh, Would you like to take that on notice? I'll, t- I'll take okay. that on notice or I can ask Ms Campbell. And given the apparent increase in need that's happening, are there plans to increase that team? Uh, there are not currently plans to okay. increase the team. However, every budget cycle is a new budget cycle. 
that's right. We can only hope. Thank you. Um, and just who assesses the application to the New South Wales Seniors Grant Program? Because I note in the guidelines there is an assessment team and an assessment panel. Who does that comprise of? I'm happy for you to take that on notice, Minister. I can take that on notice, sure. but I do, have okay. the, I do have the answer here if you'd like. I can follow that up in the afternoon if, if you like, if you're not. Yep. Um, and could you tell me how much the New South Wales Seniors Festival costs each year? Uh, again, I'll take... You want to take that on I'll notice? Okay, on no notes. problem. Do you know how the overall cost of the festival split across regional New South Wales and Metro? I'll take that on notice. Okay, no worries. So effectively, have you allowed taxpayers' funds to be used for a journalist to go and get some lollies, a soft drink and a packet of cigarettes? Um, look, my understanding was that um, I, my, I would be paying that money back. Have you paid that money back, Minister? I can't tell you off the top of my head because I'm not sure. Okay, so, so you just said before that your office set up those meetings and it was just a like coincidence that it was on the weekend of Splendour in the Grass? Oh no, I was invited to attend Splendour in the Grass. With a staff member on taxpayer money? Well, I was invited to attend Splendour in the Grass, which I have fully disclosed, um, as both the Minister for the North Coast and the Minister for Youth. Um, and I do try and get up to the North Coast at least every month, right. if I can. And I thought, what a great opportunity to do a couple of really important things. One, check out an incredible, you know, sort of tourist, um, arts, music, culture mecca on the North but, Coast. But Minister, Such an important with, part yeah, of the sort with, of North With respect, Coast. Minister, you've used taxpayer money to go to a music festival, haven't you? Well, no, I've used taxpayer money to visit the area for which I'm the minister responsible. Yes, but you've also just said that your office set up those visits over a weekend that purely out of coincidence has Splendour in the Grass, which you're also going to. You haven't claimed the accommodation, but you have claimed flights and car hire to go to a music festival on taxpayer money. Do you think that that's an appropriate use I absolutely of taxpayer think. funding? that my regular visits to the North To go to Coast, music festivals. I absolutely think so that So we're going to see you, visits. you're going to go to Blues Fest, we're going to see you, you know, you're going to be up there for, um, you know, Falls Festival. Is this a regular occurrence that you and your staff are going to go up to music festivals on the North Coast? I'll be visiting the North Coast as regularly as I can. Does that offend you, the three or four hours, Mr. So, Mr. Fang, Fang I mean, I said, I said, no, Mr. Fang. Seriously, do you think you can get my name right? Like, you're the Minister for Multiculturalism. Mr. Fang. Like, I think Mr. It's, Fang. it's a little bit insensitive uh, that uh, you uh, can't even get my name right. I've got a nameplate here with my own name. Let's move on. Everyone, everyone acknowledged him as the number one person for the chair role. How many? And except, except, except for yourself, Mr. Mr. Wayne. Well, Mr. Fang, I'd Mr. appreciate Fang. if you could get my name right at least. Sorry about that. I'll you are the Minister for Multiculturalism, but that's yeah. okay. We'll move on from there. Um, Minister, um, well, Fryer, that was pretty appalling, you've got to admit. That's right. And I think the other thing that's worth mentioning is it's death by a thousand cuts. While any one of these instances, when look at, looked at in an isolated sort of context, might not look too terrible, oh, you know, clearly the minister just doesn't know the details, whatever. When that is accumulated across the vast majority of Labor ministers, 
over four years, because they're going to be in government for the next four years, we will see the results of that. You may not be able to see it or feel it right now, but give it a few years. You're talking about cumulative damage from, mm-hmm. from sustained incompetence. Correct. <laughs> and, and, and unfortunately, you are spot on. I mean, we are going to see, regrettably, in New South Wales, cumulative damage from cumulative incompetence. Mm-hmm. And, and it's going to take a long time to turn this around. I mean, I mean, you know, even, you know, just Steve Camper, you know, not being able to get Wes, Wes Fang's name right, you know, like it's on a... call him, Wes Wang? Wes Wang. It, it's, it's, it's on a card in front of him. But then not only to continually disrespect him in that fashion as the Minister for Multiculturalism, but then to just giggle about it, like every time... He, he, he makes a mistake. Steve Camper just seems to sort of, you know, go into the giggles. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's bizarre behaviour. It, it's unbelievable. But anyway, it, it's symptomatic, unfortunately, of a group of people who are in jobs that are entirely beyond them. Mm. Mm. Well, that's right. I don't think the union movement really trained them for running multi-thousand person departments. I, I think that's a fair comment and I think... You know, it's that lack of professional experience, that lack of professionalism mm. that I think is really coming back to bite them in a big way. And, and look, you know, Chris Minns is floundering too. Let's face it, he, he's, no longer, he's no longer the preferred Premier. Mm. More people are, are undecided about him being the preferred Premier than actually support him. I mean, I think that's a pretty sad state of affairs yeah when you've only been Premier for nine months. I think people are significantly underwhelmed with his performance and the performance of his government. Totally. And what have they done? They've been in... How many months have we had this Labor government for? And what has changed? What has gone to households that has improved their lives? It's really hard to see. To all, all the main problems that are facing people, cost of living, housing, education, health, What's changed? What's improved? They've lurched from crisis to crisis. They haven't had any capacity to deal with the major issues that are confronting the community. Mm. I agree with you. And, 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 and people's rents are going up. Their cost of living is going up. Their quality of life is going down. It, it's, it's been an incredibly disappointing performance. And we've got Labor in the federal sphere, Labor in the state sphere, they can't blame anyone other than themselves. That's it. And there's nowhere to hide now. You can't blame some Liberal government. You can't keep looking backwards and saying it was the previous government because the reality is you're in government now. It's your job. And they're making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, uh, Freya, another interesting week in Macquarie Street. Uh, thanks for, for joining me and... As uh, as we sign out, we thank people for listening to this episode and look forward to the next one. I, know you. You know me. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters and I look forward to you joining us again next week. Together.